Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hey, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. I've just had a, um, a very, very quick chat with my next guest, Aziz Musa, and he's always got me absolutely fascinated already. I mean... When you hear the accent and you hear the country he's from, you're gonna your head's gonna spin. Is that right, Aziz? Welcome. Hello, Russell, and thank you. Now that's a deep, sexy, sultry voice. Now, where are you from? So uh, I was born in Blackpool. I spent most of my life in Blackpool, and um, before moving to Dubai, I had actually quite a deep northern accent, a up, and all of that. Yeah, um, you but, can hear a little yeah, twang. Like, well, it, I, I had to soften it out, you know, because when I moved to Dubai, people literally couldn't understand me on the phones. So I li- I had to soften it out. And then I've sort of kept this more neutral. But if you're from the UK, you can definitely detect a northern twang in there, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I'm the same. I, people have lost my accent. And I, people ask me, where in this part of the world where I am now, where was I born? And I'm mortally offended because I was born here. <laughs> can you not tell? <laughs> <laughs> it's also a bit indictment when people from your own <laughs> from your own place don't know that you were born there. Well, look, it's a joy to is talk to you Is it the same with you where... Go on, is it the same? I was going to say, is it the same with uh, when, you're, when you're with your friends, you, you go straight into your Newcastle accent? Uh, I'm like that with my brothers. We immediately fly into Northern. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, you and I have got a massive lag on this line, so uh, because you're in Egypt, I understand. So... Um, well, look, let's delve into things you've already in, you've already teased me with a link to Dubai, and I used to live in Dubai as well. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Sure. So um, I own a digital marketing agency called Kush Digital. It was um, formerly called Sudan Digital. Uh, my background is really business. Uh, my, my father was, like yourself, a doctor and would have loved me to have become a doctor. Sadly, I just didn't have the intellect that doctors need to be able to study for that length of time. And business was something I was really passionate about. Um, And I moved to Sudan in 2017. And before moving to Sudan in Africa, uh, I was the CEO of a publicly listed company in the UK called Blackbird PLC. And I worked for many big companies. I'm sure your listeners will have heard of lastminute.com and Travelocity and companies like that, moonpig.com. Um, so really my background is all in business and I'd spent a good number of years as the, the CEO of a public company and felt felt wholly um, disinterested with 
uh, the work that I was doing, I really felt like I was working for myself and for shareholders and really didn't feel like I was having an impact on on the world or an impact at least in a positive way on, on the people around me. And so I made uh, what was a really difficult decision at the time to move to a third world country, Sudan. So, um, Sudan is where uh, my family is from. You know, I'd been there every year on holiday. Uh, and my objective really was to go there and to start a social enterprise. Sudan, for those of your listeners who, who don't know much about Sudan, um, is directly south of Egypt. Um, it had until recently been under 30 years of uh, international sanctions. There was essentially no digital economy there at all. And so my idea was pretty simple. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go there, start a social enterprise, build um, build digital capabilities in the country, and, and hopefully start to make an impact on people's lives. Wow. So that's kind of what took me to Sudan. And there I started Sudan Digital. I had no ambition whatsoever to build a successful company but through doing the right thing that's what we ended up doing you know we ended up being the biggest digital agency in the region international clients like Hyundai and Emirates and the like Um, but more importantly than that for me you know I trained uh, and mentored 4,000 different people in Sudan and they had started hundreds of startups and the thing that that re- what that really means is that when 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 a young man is starting a startup and, and bringing just a small amount of money into his household in Sudan, that's the difference between people eating and not eating. Yeah. And so that's really where I got the the satisfaction from. And then I found myself in Egypt uh, because on the fifteenth of April, um, the last of the disasters that we expected to happen happened, which was uh, which was a civil a civil war, and it happened quite literally in front of my house and uh, in front of our office and that was an experience that I don't think I'll ever forget. Wow and I'm guessing that's a civil war that ended up with South Sudan is that is that how that worked was that different? Yeah that was different so that was um, in uh, the early part of the 2000s so uh, South Sudan became its own country I think in 2010 this was a war between two generals and it happened in the capital city Khartoum of course um, and yeah. yes yeah, I remember. Yes, because at one, I, that's right. It was it was famously a battle between two two armies, basically within the same country. Country, wasn't it? Yeah, one was very good at one sort of skirmish, and one was good at the other, and they just took each other on for some reason. So has that been resolved? No, no, that's ongoing. People are uh, sadly dying uh, on a daily basis. The, the country is in uh, just an, an extraordinary bad position. People are still trying to flee into other countries. Food, water, electricity are, uh, are, are are very difficult to come across. So it's still very much a live war, uh, and yeah, I you know I find it really sad, especially nowadays. I'm I'm not sure when you publish these podcasts, but you know, looking at what's going on in Gaza and, and Israel, and and seeing the commentary of people who have never really experienced war talking about war as though it's um, movement of a chess piece on a chessboard, it's really saddening. I think that if everyone experienced that for a day, no one will go to war again. Well, what is it like? Tell us tell us a bit, unpack it a bit for us. Perez, it wasn't um, unexpected. Uh, you know, when you move to a third world country, you have to build your tolerance to lots of things. Uh, and one of the things that you have to do is you have to try and get pretty good at predicting the future. And one of the things yeah. that was quite clear is that a war was coming. Um, it 
still was a shock. Um, you know, it was during Ramadan. Uh, in Ramadan, you know, in the mornings, you're always asleep. You don't really get up until uh, in the early afternoon. Uh, but on the Saturday, Saturday, the 15th of April, uh, I was awoken by uh, anti-aircraft fire. And, you know, it's one of those sounds that you don't need to know. You don't need to be in the army to know what anti-aircraft fire sounds like. And yeah. it, it's not a sound, it's more of a vibration. It kind of pounds at your chest like yeah. being in a club next to a big uh, a, a big a big speaker um and then the what happened immediately afterwards was that I, I went onto the roof of a building looked out and saw a scene from a movie really which was just thousands of cars and people all going in one direction along the main road wow. um and you know having to try and assimilate all of that information and then make sensible decisions for, for my for my family for my kids and then for my employees was the challenge for the next few days after that um to, to be honest Russell it was it was a lot more difficult than I expected it to be. I, mm. I, I guess that it's a strange thing to say, but yeah. like I said, we expected there to be a war, but there are just sights and smells and things that you can't quite imagine until they happen. And however much you've you've um, contingency planned for these eventualities, yeah. the reality is, is actually kind of different. Um, I think that the smells are the things that are, are most vivid. Um, the smell yeah. of rotting corpses and yeah. artillery and... Burning. things like that and then the sounds burning as well yeah, it, yeah. it's it was a really challenging um it was a really challenging moment in time but i think what i found more interesting is the period afterward right. i think in the period afterward up until now things it's almost like things are clearer and easier to deal with i yeah. think that there's one of those Priorities. things that yeah priorities but also the small things just don't matter anymore they just mm. don't have that impact that they used to i think that that's one of those things uh, i remember a, a, a quote from um peaky blinders i'm not sure if you've ever seen that oh show. yeah 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 and uh and one of the women said um i've died already so i can't die again and then she goes on and, and lives lives her life so yeah it was a real challenge it was a real challenge but um it's it, it's wrong to say that it was enjoyable because it wasn't, but it was beneficial. I'll say that psychologically, yeah. it's been beneficial for me. Others have, you know, it's it's been the opposite yeah. impact to them. So, so you obviously you're you obviously sitting. So, just to rule back, if I may, so you're obviously sitting in the middle of this conflict, and you, you obviously have to look after yourself and your family, your significant partners, whatever it is. And I, I'm guessing, if you're running a business, you're you're going to take some people with you and leave other people behind. So that must be heartrending. Um, so what's that process to get out? How did you get out? How why why Egypt and how did you get there? So I'll start with why Egypt. So actually in the January uh, of this year, we'd sat down as a management team and said, okay, obviously something's going to happen in Sudan. We need a contingency plan. We should set up a second office. Where should that be? And the first choice was Dubai because that's where most of our client base is. And then we thought, well, it may it may be that the airport gets closed or so let's let's try and find somewhere that's landlocked somewhere that we can go buy land and egypt was the obvious place because we already had um some space uh to for ourselves in in egypt in aswan in egypt so that plan was there including you know the people that we would need to take with us um and we'd spent you know i'd spent a good two weeks just focusing on the the minute details of exactly how that would work and this is in january so four months before before the war and i'd missed some really obvious things you know um things like 
women in Sudan don't travel without their parents. So you can have all of these things on a list of who you're going to take with you. But when push comes to shove, we actually only managed to get half of the people out that we wanted to get out. Um, After the, you know, on the first day of the war, we all have contacts with various people in the army. And and so the the general mood was that this would last two or three days. And even the British, the British consulate, they had similar sentiment. You know, when I was asking, is there an evacuation plan? They're like, no, not yet. We think that this will, will die out. Yeah. Um, after the third day, you see what had been happening is at the end of every uh, evening, I'd go up to the roof and I'd literally watch the war unfold, yeah. who was fighting from where and where. And the rebels, um, you know, the, the the general sentiment was that they were weak, they were limited in number, and they wouldn't last long. And that just wasn't at all what I was seeing on the yeah. ground. So by the end of the third day, I said to my wife, we are leaving. Whatever happens, we've got to go now. And there was a lot of resistance, a lot of resistance from um, her, her parents, her family, and um you know, I spent probably a good 24 hours on the phone convincing people to leave, which now seems ridiculous because, by the way, all of their homes have been looted and ransacked and, they're, you know, their bases for, for, for rebels and things like but that. But it's their home, as you say. It is. It, it really is, yeah. And so on the Thursday morning, we, uh, we set off. And, you know, it was harrowing because you, you're going through um, military checkpoints, uh, sort of almost every 100 150 meters and then we finally got onto the main road which would take us out of Khartoum and uh, I remember as we were driving down that road uh, suddenly I heard two cracks of a Kalashnikov and you you know you get used to that sound and I thought oh my god they shot us and then I turned around there was a, a, a car behind us and they'd shot the car behind us, directly behind us. Right. And then about 150 meters along the road was a military checkpoint from from the rebels, and they stopped. And uh, he came and he peered into the. He he rolled, we rolled down the window. He, he put his head into the car and his Kalashnikov as well, which was like there, like for your listeners, like three yeah. inches from my face. Yeah. And he he said in Arabic, "What rank are you? You know, what army rank are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm not. I'm not." in the army, I have an army rank. And he said, uh, right, well, get up and, you know, uh, show me what's in the boot of your car. And so, you know, just that moment, that process was kind of like a, yeah. a, a seminal moment. I remember looking at, and he couldn't have been more than 17 years old. He, mm. he was a child. Yeah. Um, but it's surprising how manly children look with the Kalashnikov in their Good, hands. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so um, eventually we did manage to get to the border. We got to the border. Uh, the land crossing is for, you know, lorries and goods. It's not designed for people. Yeah. And so when we got there, there was um, three cars, two of which were our cars and one bus. And uh, the people there were saying, you know, this is the busiest day we've ever had. You're going to have to sleep here at the crossing and tomorrow we'll get you over. And I remember looking at um, the lieutenant and saying to him, you know that, What's coming behind me is multiples of what's arrived today, right? They're like, no, 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 it should be fine. Three days later, 150 buses were at that same wow. place. It, it actually became a refugee camp. And so, you know, thank God we just, we managed to get out hard. early. Yeah, and 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 kind of uh, that helped us in, in almost everything, setting up our life in Aswan, setting up the business in, in everything. It's been a lot easier because we left early. We've been able to evacuate other people from our team 
uh, as well, uh, which has been helpful. But, um, you know, there's still people there that we're trying to evacuate even to this day. Wow. And so so you, so it's interesting because you made a reference to this slightly earlier on, that some people go through these events and they come out okay. Some come out broken and some come out, I'm not going to say stronger, but um, enhanced in some sort of way, shape. So it's, it sounds like you're a latter. So I wonder if you can talk us through whether this has been a deliberate process or this is just something you found in yourself. I can't say that the process has been deliberate, but the steps throughout the process have been deliberate. So I have never shied away from difficult decisions or difficult situations. And so I'll give you, I'll give you two examples of that, one in business and then one in sport, um, both from, from myself. So the first one was, you know, when I was the CEO of a, um, a PLC, uh, I had gone to do some fundraising, as one does to try and continue uh, sure. the endeavours that we were going through. And uh, we had aimed to raise a, a certain figure, uh, and we had only been able to raise a, a third of that figure. And again, much like in Sudan, I had written down a plan B. If that doesn't happen, then this is what will... And that plan B involved sitting down and literally making redundant 50% of the organisation. Yeah. And so... Um, I didn't hesitate in doing that because in, in my mind it was, I'm not making half the company redundant, I'm saving half the company's jobs. And so that was how I kind of rationalized it in my mind. And I think that that, that approach, I think a lot of things are, are to do with a higher purpose, right? And not necessarily yourself having a higher purpose, but having some sort of higher belief. So yeah. dealing with Sudan, for example, I always felt like I was doing good for the people of Sudan. Sudan and that was yeah. more important than me feeling uncomfortable because of a 12-hour power cut um, and so always in in those situations having having faith and, and having faith in, in sort of a higher purpose has been helpful so in a sport example I'm into boxing so I'm a boxer okay. and I, I love boxing and um, uh, I've had a, a few fights and, and one of them what was a, um, <laughs> super heavyweight Okay, no you can't see, I guess, because I think, yeah, I'm six foot five, so I'm, I'm oh, kind wow. of a big guy. Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, it was a year ago, you know, I we do an event called Spartans White Collar Boxing. Our client is Spartans, we run the event and all of the content. And I happen to be boxing in this, I wasn't supposed to be boxing in the event, but there aren't many heavyweights, and one of the heavyweights dropped out with like three weeks' notice. And I said, Yeah, I'll step in because this other guy has been through a whole 12 week process and it'll be devastating for him not to box. And so in my mind, I was like, Yeah, I'm gonna do it, it should be fine. Um, and I got knocked out in the first round in front of 600 people that I knew, yeah. and the emotional pain, it, the physical pain dissipates quite quickly. Yeah. The emotional pain, though, of being that roundly destroyed in a boxing ring in front of so many people that you know, I mean, it's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me. I remember getting out of the ring and then going out to get dressed and sitting in the, sitting in the changing room, like with my head in my hands, thinking, God, how am I going to go back out there? I'm not going to go out there. And then I, I clearly remember having the thought, a normal person wouldn't go out there, so you go out. And so yeah. I, I got up and I just went in. And I, you know, it was embarrassing. I can't, like, I can't get away from yeah. it. It was a really embarrassing moment. Yeah, but you and did it. You emotionally. stepped up, though, to start with. That's the point. Uh, yeah, and I think that that's the key, is that, you know, the, the difference between those who have left the war... Um, broken and those who have left the war stronger, I think is the willingness to 
accept the reality that's in front of them and move forward anyway. Yeah. Um, and that move forward anyway is, I think that that mindset is the thing that that really helped me through all of those uh, sort of all of those tribulations, if you like. Yeah, I, I remember hearing a quote something about being scared and having to do something. So you may as well go forward and do it, and be because you're always going to be scared. So you may as well get on and do it at the same time. But but what you've done, and people talk about this a lot about in how to manage anxiety, and you've just said it so many times. You build capacity, and you build resilience, and you lower anxiety by having a plan and having a plan B. Because what you're effectively doing is you're conjecturing what a future might hold. And if anxiety is the fear of the future, what you're doing is you're sort of putting down, well, if this happens, we'll do this. If this happens, we'll do that. You sort of got a an answer where a lot of anxious people just say, oh, my God, it'll be terrible. But they don't take anything proactive or put a process in place to help them. So I, I wonder whether that planning thing has always been a mindset thing or has been a skill you've learned or, I mean, you're obviously successful in business. Is that something from your business life you brought into your personal life? Very much um, something that I've had to learn. It's not something that that's innate. Um, and I remember reading a book which made reference to the Mossad in Israel and this this um, thought experiment that they have called the Tenth Man Experiment. Have you ever come across that? I have. The Tenth yeah, Man. Yeah. 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 So outline it, outline it a little bit for people. Yeah. Sure. So um, for your listeners, essentially, Mossad collects uh, lots of data and some of the data points are just, you know, highly unlikely and improbable scenarios. OK, so um, and, and some of those scenarios can, can include, you know, the Middle East, the Middle Eastern armies uh, arranging themselves. What if they're about to attack Israel? And it's so improbable that mostly they're dismissed, but they've been burnt by dismissing these ideas in the past so they came and up recently. with this and more recently exactly um and they've come up they came up with this this kind of new approach where if there's 10 in a room uh, and nine of them agree that the intel does not present a threat it's the 10th man's duty to believe it exactly as it is and to act accordingly yeah. and so um you know i've applied that in my businesses um for, for some time and so as an example of that you know when we landed in sudan Working in a third world country is, is really unique. There are things that you can't even imagine being an issue, like um, not having running water or not having electricity. So when we'd arrived in 2017, it was a military dictatorship, and it was actually relatively stable in terms of the economy, in terms of um, the, the, um, the infrastructure. Things were quite stable, but there was a lot of rumors uh, about the sudden collapse of the dollar, which the Sudanese uh, economy is very reliant on, mm. um, so the pound against the dollar, and that that would impact Im oil imports and that in turn would impact electricity. And it was it was so unlikely at that time because people were living kind of prosperous lives. I remember sitting down with, with, my, with my team and saying, okay, this is just a rumor, but let's assume that it's right. Okay, if we assume that it's right, what do we do? Well, we would find another source of electricity. And the obvious source in the sub-Saharan African country is the sun, right? So we spent $20,000 and we set up solar panels. And um, we got our energy from solar panels. And, and actually, it, it did a few things. Firstly, it just brought our electricity bills down to zero. So we yeah. recouped the money in a year anyway. Um, but secondly, six months after that, we started going through 12-hour rolling blackouts um, across Khartoum. And so that 10th man mentality is something that I've tried. To, so, there is a danger of 
giving credence to all intel and being yeah. beholden to rumors. But at some at some point, you've got to kind of use your, your logic and talking to the people around you and their expertise to come out with some sort of, is this a real threat or not? And if it is, to act accordingly. Um, yeah, so I think it, it's something that I've had to learn. I've had to learn throughout my business life. Yeah, it's a great idea. And it's that, it's, it's that idea of moving away from groupthink, isn't it? Because actually... Well, what's currently happening, or arguably what's happening in Israel because of the political climate, actually everyone's, because if you eliminate um, the opposition, such like, or you go be, become more extreme, it, every, everything's predicated on all believing the same thing. And therefore you can all drive yourself into over the same cliff edge, can't you? So fascin fascinating. So um, what's the future for you? Where are you going in life? I think my focus right now is on bringing more of our people over from Sudan into Egypt uh, and getting them safe. I think that, you know, um, without getting into politics, I'm a capitalist at heart. So like that is kind of, kind of my mindset, but I, like a pure capitalist, so, you know, one that tries to do good whilst building economies, right? And so I think that <clears throat> I have a unique opportunity to continue to um, evacuate people from the war zone and to give them jobs and uh, to pay them in a way that they're able to support themselves and their families. And, and, you know, we're blessed to be able to do that for so many people. But I think that's my focus right now. Therefore, you know, at the same time, we have a digital agency and the only way that you can actually bring in or uh, evacuate more people from Sudan is if you're making revenue from clients and you can only make revenue from clients if they're happy with your service. And so, you know, the primary objective is bringing more clients uh, and every client that we bring in, you know, we are able to bring in one or two more people from Sudan. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that none of our clients know uh, about what's happening with us. They don't really know. I remember meeting one of our clients um, in Dubai recently who I've known for years and um, he, he made a passing comment about uh, we pay our bills every month so that you can build your um, so that you can build your your villa in Marbella, yeah. and um, I didn't respond. But at the time, I was thinking. I nearly responded. I nearly told him what we actually do with our money. But I said, at the time, I was thinking. I understand why he believes that because yeah. that's what most agency owners do. Yeah. But if he knew where his money was actually going, I think he'd be prouder than anything else. But then that's a strange dichotomy, right? Because if I'd have told him that, he wouldn't have necessarily felt comfortable stopping an agreement with us if there was ever an issue in the future. So it's a strange thing, you know. You want to, you want to try and keep the quality of service, and not you don't want people to do you favors. You just want yeah. good work to to win out, and therefore be able to bring more people in from Sudan. So I think that's probably probably the thing that I'm focused on at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people create a social enterprise alongside their firm, don't they, and put a, an amount of profit in it. And that way, it sort of keeps the two things separate. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm sure you've discussed a that of, opportunity before. It's very tax efficient as well, apparently. Yeah, a lot of doctors are doing that uh, yeah. at the moment. A lot of um, doctors are, are, are sort of dedicating sort of 15% of their time to telemedicine uh, for, you know, third yeah. world countries and you know i think that's like um it's such an impactful way to execute your profession uh so you know my dad was like i said my dad um was a doctor he was a doctor in sudan and he was a doctor in the, the nhs and he always used to say that you know being in sudan you are the difference between life and death and being yeah. in the nhs 
you're part of a system. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So if people want to support the work that you're doing or hire your digital agency to be able to uh, indirectly support the work you're doing, uh, how could people get in touch with you? Sure. So you can uh, visit our website. We're kush.digital. That's C U S H. By the way, Kush for a lot of people means cannabis. Um, yes. But uh, we aren't to do with cannabis. Kush actually refers to the Kushite Empire, which uh, spanned Sudan and, and Egypt and superseded the Egyptian Empire. Uh, and I'm easiest to contact on LinkedIn, Aziz Musa at LinkedIn. Brilliant. Well, look, it's absolutely absolutely fascinating. And please keep in touch with us because I'd love to know how your story develops. I think that'd be absolutely marvellous. And maybe in a number of months, we'll come back for an update and see how you're doing. Yeah, that would be great. Brilliant. Oh, well, look, thanks so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, support Aziz, that's what I'd say. Hit him up on LinkedIn. Uh, Aziz Musa, M-U-S-A. Uh, links will be in our show notes. And uh, what a cause. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. You take care. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed. And if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.